Genesis 38. Let's, uh, let's dive in here. Uh, you're lucky if you're here today. Genesis 28 is one of the top five chapters you'd want to skip uh, if you're preaching through a book in the Bible. Uh, it's got some interesting content. Uh, we, array, we rearranged the teen and preteen schedule to make sure they were out, uh, just so that the parents of preteens and teens don't have to answer awkward questions on the drive home. Uh, so thank you to myself uh, for not having to have that conversation with my 12-year-old. If you're unsure why, you're, you'll find out here in about 60 seconds. Alright, Genesis 38. Hopefully you've enjoyed Genesis so far uh, and gotten a lot out of it. We're on the home stretch. And uh, we did give Jack the last chapter of Genesis, the one that ties it all up. He did call dibs at like chapter one or two, so we figured we'd let him have that. Today, 38, and we won't make Jack do this one. All right. So if you were with us last week, we, we started Joseph in, the, in, you know, kind of a rough family right there. Uh, if you think your family is bad, then you feel a little less so after Joseph as his brother's uh, decide that killing him is not the most advantageous thing for their life, but selling him into slavery is a better move. Uh, and uh, we, you know, the Joseph narrative kind of has a pause, and we get this little aside chapter that zooms in on Judah. Uh, and one of the main aims of it is to highlight uh, Joseph and his character, and how counter even his own, uh, within his own family his character is in terms of following a righteous life. Uh, and you'll see why here when we look at Judah. So let's, let's read here about Judah and Tamar, starting there in verse 1. It says, At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Harak. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Aaron. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Manon. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezeb that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as your brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may, too, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hera, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Nim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that, he was, that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. 
After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend to Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find him. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road in it? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. And Judah said, let her keep what she has and we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young girl, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. As a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said to her, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shalom. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. When he drew back his hand, his brother came out and said, So this is how you have broken out. He was named Perez. And his brother, who had the scarlet thread on the wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. Now you see why the preteens are not here. Let's have a prayer and then we'll dig into this and then draw some points. Father, we, uh, you know, we do thank you. Thank you for the you know, unfiltered testimony of your scriptures. God. We know that, that, that even the heroes of old in the faith are, are, are deeply flawed men and women. God. We pray, God, you help us to learn the lessons we are meant to learn from them today. That we can have a greater and, and deeper appreciation of the dangerous uh, enemy that we face in sin. And Father, may we never lose sight of your grace that can enable us to overcome it. Help us in this process, God. Pour out much grace and mercy on us all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Look, it is a, it is a, it is a very, very interesting text. And there's some things in here that, that are definitely counterculture to us. Uh, and we'll unpack them as, as we go along, uh, specifically talking about this idea of brothers, uh, you know, brothers that have deceased being married on by the, the, their spouse being married on by the next uh, brother. We'll, we'll cover all that and hopefully answer all those questions as we go. Uh, but we do want to look at just kind of two overarching themes that are pretty apparent in this text. Right? As it has been many times before in Genesis, we are confronted with this deep sinfulness of mankind. Right? And here specifically, I want to unpack a little bit the sinfulness of sin. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. Uh, and then also we'll see here, and we'll finish off with this great reminder of just how graceful our God is. Amen? So simple, sinfulness of sin. You may think, what? okay, what does that mean? Byron's looking at me confused. Like, you know, of course sin is sinful. Right? And then I think that's true. But I think oftentimes we have a, a too domesticated viewpoint of sin. We think of sin purely as like a mistake, an error of choice, uh, a, a decision we make that, you know, is, is not maybe fully aligned with God. And we can kind of just sometimes sum it up with a little whoopsie and, you know, think, okay, that's it, that's done, I won't do that again, and then kind of move on. But I think this story, you know, in a bit of the last chapter as well, is a cautionary tale on just how insidious sin is. And sin is not passive. It doesn't just, you know, come and then disappear. It's not just a singular mistake. It has ripple effects through our lives. 
Now we would have known that early on when we saw in Genesis 4, God interacting with Cain. Right? Remember that great story, Cain and Abel, they make offerings. Uh, Abel's is accepted, Cain's is not up to, up to, the, to, to uh, the bar God had set. And God comes to Cain and he tells Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master that's kind of interesting language there. It's this idea that sin is crouching at his door. God is trying to help Cain understand, and us by extension to understand, that sin has a predatory nature about it. Yeah. It is not just like a single, like, whoopsie doodle. Don't do that again. No, no, no. There's something deeper and more significantly happening, you know, something more significantly spiritual happening when we open the door to sin. It is predatory, the Bible says. Jesus will never later on warn that it is enslaving. That if we allow it to gain a foothold in our lives, it, if left unchecked, will enslave us and destroy us. And it happens little by little by little. I mean, look back at 37. Let's look at Judah a little bit closer. We talked about him last week, and you know... There in verse 4 of chapter 7, we, we see right at the back, uh, Joseph has been given some sweet clothes. You know, maybe we all feel that way about Bailey's new car. We look at Bailey's new car and we think, man, I wish I had that Asusu D-Max, just hypothetically, you know what I mean? And, and maybe you've been tempted to, to look on that car, which you can see if you just look out the window there, and, and, and you can feel a little jealous, right? Envious, I'm speaking from personal experience here. You know, but Judah... Judah saw Joseph and he saw the favoritism that, that, that Jacob, his father, lavished on Joseph. And, and jealousy and envy began to appear in his heart. And we saw very quickly in chapter 37 that it doesn't stop with jealousy. And it doesn't stop with envy. Hatred begins to grow. You know, and if we remember back to, I don't know, last year, I think midway through the year, we did 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. And... And hatred is dangerous. I mean, envy and jealousy for sure are dangerous, but hatred brings, brings darkness into our hearts and into our minds. And in darkness, other things begin to flourish. I mean, we see there that, that, that in chapter 37, Judah can't even say a single kind word to his brother. I mean, that's a, that's a telltale sign that resentment and bitterness are beginning to grow and flourish. And very quickly what follows after in the story of Judah is not just resentment, resentment, but murderous intent. Seeing his brother come over that hill wearing that stupid jacket or driving that D-Max, <laughs> the thought enters Judah's mind, let's kill him. You think, that's like, a, like half a chapter. In half a chapter, he goes from jealousy to thinking, I'm going to kill my brother. That's sin. And we may think, man, it's small, it's insignificant, it's, I'm not hurting anyone but myself, if I'm even hurting myself. But we've got to realize, man, there's something else at play. And it does. It begins to grow in Judah's heart. And murderous intent is only tempered by selfishness. What you think about that? That's a dark thought. The thought of killing his brother is only tempered, is only kind of walked back a little bit because he realizes 
you know what? 30 shekels of silver, that's a fair bit of money. I mean, I do have, a, you know, 10 other brothers that I probably got to split up with to some degree to shut them up, but that's a lot of money. You know, some people think that's three years of salary for a shepherd back then. It's a lot of money. Judah decides, hey, that, that's a good idea. Selfish, selfishness then leads to, to him selling his brother into slavery. Difficult, difficult thing. Dark decisions. But sin's not done with Judah yet. Judah then is going to have to lie about it by slaughtering a goat, covering the garment in blood, and taking it back to his dad. We read the text about how his dad is beyond consolation. I mean, the entire family comes to Israel and is trying to console him at the loss of Joseph's life, so he thinks. And there is Judah, along with the other brothers, just deceiving him. Willfully deceiving his father that is crushed. And you think about, what does that do to your heart? What does that do to you emotionally, spiritually, physically even? To callously sit there and know that you could relieve that grief by just coming into the light, just telling the truth. And yet Judah keeps silent. Says nothing. Refuses to come into the light. And it's no surprise then that we pick up in 38 where it just says at that time, right? At that time when Judah knows what's really happened and yet he's calloused and hard-hearted towards his father and won't tell him. And so Judah just leaves. And where does he go? He heads, he heads over to, to Adullam, which if you know the Bible well, you think, oh, okay, that's where David was. Yes, it was Israelites' territory in David's time thanks to Joshua. But not, not in Judah's time. It's full of Canaanite people. Right? And what does he do there? Well, calloused Judah goes with his hardened heart and he compromises. He marries, just like Esau had before, a Canaanite. Compromising on the faith. Judah then has three kids. And when his kids get older, what does he do? He, he most likely, Tamar, was not a Canaanite because she's not, well, text doesn't say she's a Canaanite. It's such an interesting thing what he does there. He goes and he gets a wife for his eldest son who is not a Canaanite, though he himself has married a Canaanite. That is called hypocrisy. Rules for thee, but not for me. Applying a standard to his son that he himself doesn't apply to his own life. Again, how has he gotten to this point? Little by little by little. And if you read the Bible, even just through Genesis, you discover very quickly that hypocrisy is an incredibly dangerous thing when you think about parenting. And so it's no surprise to find that his sons are so wicked that God strikes them down. I mean, the first one, the text doesn't even tell us why God strikes them down. It's reminiscent of Genesis 6 when God looked and just saw how the inclination of man's heart was evil all the time. And so judgment was coming and it was coming swiftly. And for, Ju for Judah's firstborn, it was almost immediate. And then even the secondborn had clearly adopted Judah's me-first mentality. Right? Talking a little bit here about the, 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 uh, the idea of... of, of Liberate marriage, it's not just 
confined to, to the, the, the Bible, though. You can, it's actually found in other sources as well uh, for the ancient Assyrians. But it was a common practice. And it was a common practice for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons was actually to protect a woman. A woman whose husband had died had no means to support herself, no means to have protection. This was a way to protect her and to provide for her. It was also a way to honor the deceased, the deceased man, so that he could have offspring that would carry on his family name. Judah's son, Onan, knows that. And he knows that if he gets Tamar pregnant, that inheritance that is now his, because the firstborn's out of the way, is gone. That it's going to go to that child that, that you know, Tamar gives birth to. And so he takes Judah's selfish mindset and he makes it his own and he begins to follow the same path as his father and then suffers the same fate as his brother. Now you think if you're Judah and you know what you've done, you know how you've arrived at this place, you know how decision after decision to consciously disobey God has brought you to this place where two of your sons now have been struck down by God. I don't know about you, but I think, man, if that happened to me, surely there would be a shred of humility. Surely there would be. But there's not. What does he do? He puts on falsehood. And he tells Tamar, hey, go back to your father's house. And once my youngest son gets old enough, I'll send for you. He'll marry you and he'll fulfill his duty. Now we know the story. We know that that never happens. He had no intention of doing that. He was again choosing himself, his his family, his third born, overdoing the right thing. Judah's not done. Sin is not done with him. Sin is still enslaving him and working in his life and in his heart. He goes on from there and obviously commits immorality, gives into to, you know, practicing prostitution by engaging with her. But you think about even what he goes when he goes and tries to pay off his IOU. I mean, he even acknowledges that she's a temple prostitute. Or so he thinks. And he thinks, so, man, think about how far Judah's gone here. It's not just, he's not just done these things. I mean, the, the prostitute he's engaging with, he thinks is a temple prostitute. So it's something to do with fertility worship in the land of Cain. How far has he drifted? Now, of course, Tamar has a plan up her, up, up her sleeves. And she's going to use his need to get an IOU against him eventually. We'll talk about but even with Judah, it's not over yet. When he does hear that she's pregnant, we see kind of the epitome. And if you would, you know, read through the Gospels and you'd see that one of the things that gets the most venomous response from Jesus is this last thing we see out of Judah. Self-righteous hypocrisy. Not just hypocrisy, right? Tamar's been engaging, you know, your daughter-in-law's been engaging in prostitution. Bring her here, burn her to death. Nothing ticks Jesus off quite like that self-righteous hypocrisy. And it just flows out of Jesus. The swift judgment with no thought to his own life. No thought to his own standing before God. Before God. <clears throat> and in that progression, I hope you see and are startled by how dangerous sin is. I mean, how far he's gone and it began... Simply with that jealous glance of his brother. Just a little momentary thought. 
a thought that he, he knew was wrong and yet he clung to it. And he nursed it. And he allowed it to grow and he allowed it to take root and he allowed sin to begin to take over in his life. And the effects are disastrous. Not just for his life, but for his children's lives. And it's shocking. Shocking. There's so many passages in the Bible that warn us of this. Because we are not exempt from Judah's problems. We're not above it. I mean, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us that the Old Testament in particular is written for this reason. That we have these stories. These things have, have occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. I, mean, so, so, I think so many temptations can be overcome if we learn to envision the end game. Yeah. <clears throat> because so much of sin and temptation is about fast forwarding something that, that God doesn't necessarily disapprove of. But God has a right place, right time for that, that desire to be met. And sin is all about bringing that forward and having it now and having that without cost and without, without sacrifice from ourselves. But so often we do. We set our hearts on something that we shouldn't. And we give no thought to the long-term consequences. No thought to how that plays out. No thought to the ripple effects that that will cause in our own life or in the lives of those around us. We buy into the lie that we won't die. Which is the oldest lie in the book. It's the one that Satan whispers in Adam and Eve's ears. You're not going to die. Stories like Judah are there to help us to not set our hearts on evil things. That the next time you feel tempted to, to nurse that grudge or to give it to bitterness... Or to allow jealousy or envy to grow in your heart. Or harbor hatred towards someone. Think about Judah. Think about where that road leads to. Think about where that ship is sailing to. And jump ship. Choose a different path. Save yourself an enormous amount of heartbreak. Because if you're not careful, sin will take over your life. Paul warns of this in Romans 6. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so you obey its evil desires. Do not, any, do, do not offer any part of, your, of yourself to sin as instrument of wickedness. But rather offer yourselves to God as those who have brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. I mean, Paul is warning us here, you know, right after he's talked about baptism. Right after he's talked about, hey, that, 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 that change of status that we have when we are born again. And he's saying, look, you actually now, as someone who is born again, have power to not allow sin to reign in your body. Before baptism, right, yesterday, Linda had no power to do that. Now, Linda does have power to do that. Right, before you got baptized, you had no power. Sin would enslave you and control you, and you could try as hard as you want, but you, you, were, you were still, you were, you were locked and held prisoner under the power of sin. But, but if you've been born again, you don't, you don't have to. That power's been broken by the power of the cross. And that's an awesome news. But the problem is, we get like Stockholm Syndrome. We, 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 we go back to our kidnapper. Is that the right term? Stockholm Syndrome? Yeah. Okay. The Swede looked at me funny. I thought, oh, sure. You know, right? you know. 
You know, but we, we were like that. We kind of like become friends with our captor. We think, oh, I'm all sin. I don't know. Not that bad of a master. No, no, no. Look at the end. Look at Judah's life and understand what giving sin a foothold in your life can do. Understand that it doesn't happen instantly. That's grace. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But don't give your enemy a foothold. Amen? The sinfulness of sin. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. If it did, that would be pretty brutal. Right? We'd probably skip it there, right? No, no, we'd, skip it. we'd still look at it. Right? But, the, you know, we, we get into the grace of God here. That despite the darkness of the moment, God is working. Despite the darkness of the moment, God is working. We talked about this same concept a little bit last week. I mean, Judah and his brothers are trying to circumvent God's clear plan for Joseph. They're upset. They don't want Joseph to reign. And so they think the way to stop that is to kill Joseph or sell him into slavery. Now, when you're dealing with a sovereign God, our feeble attempts to stop it often accomplishes will. Right? And, and Judah here is a kind of you know, similar example. I mean, nothing about Judah's choices are screaming out, I'm walking the narrow road. And yet God's going to use it to accomplish his plan. And he's going to use the most unlikely agent to bring that, bring that grace into Judah's life. Tamar. A person who in that time in society had almost no power. No social position. No, no wealth, no strength. She's like as low, you know, pretty much as low as you can get on the totem pole of society. And yet God's going to use her. God's going to use her to bring his grace into Judah's life. And we'll see here very quickly why God uses her. Tamar makes decision after decision that aligns her life with the gospel path. She makes decision after decision that is the opposite of how Judah sees the world. Tamar's making choices of, hey, not, not what's best for me. Not what's my vested interest. But, but for the sake of others. And others that don't deserve that level of sacrifice. And yet we see her do that in three different ways. First to Judah, then to Judah's sons, and then lastly to Judah's distant relatives. I mean, think about to Judah. I mean, she is, she is under Judah's authority, right? I mean, he has the power, literally. She, he had given her to his first son. He had given her to the second son. He sends her home to go back to her father to wait until he sends for her to come for his third son. Tamar knew and figured out pretty quickly, she waited for that third son, that her ability to fulfill the duty that was required by her culturally and eventually even biblically to a degree, right, was being blocked by Judah. But he had that power. He had that control. In verse 13, the tone shifts. Prior to that, everything in Tamar's life is someone else dictating to her what she'll do and where she'll go. But in verse 13, Tamar sees this window of opportunity. And she sees it. The verbs all switch to within her control. She takes off her, her widow's garments. She veils herself. She conceals her true identity. And she plays the part of a prostitute. Now there's another warning in that. In the fact that she looked at, you know, she concocted this plan and knew that if she dressed up like a prostitute, that most likely Judah would stop. 
Which again is showing us how far Judah has drifted. You know, but Tamar brings a beautiful rebuke to him. You think about that. Think about a rebuke being grace. And a rebuke is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to see a scenario that you are refusing to see, but to see it with clarity. And her rebuke of Judah is almost the same as that of her distant relative, David, being rebuked by Nathan. I mean, it's like a one-line zinger that just kind of brings it all out there, right? When Jonathan the prophet tells him, tells David, you're the man, not in a positive way. But she comes to him as he sends to, to have her killed, that she is pregnant by the man who owns these. See if you recognize who sealed and cord and staff these are. I mean, that's, that's a dose of reality for Judah. But it's grace. I mean, here's a man who has spent years, maybe even a decade, willfully, intentionally, you know, with, with premeditated thought, disobeying God. And yet for a moment, all of that hypocrisy, all that darkness is peeled back. Here's a chance, Judah, to step into the light. Here's a chance to come clean. And thankfully he does. Yeah. I mean, 3826 there, and I need you to recognize them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shalom. The message version, which is not often a very accurate version, says Judah saw that they were his. He said, she is in the right. I am in the wrong. Three hardest words for a man to say. <laughs> I am wrong. Right? Not for the men in here, right, guys? Just for me. Just for me. Right? But he does. He, 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 he conquered. He swallows his pride. He, he admits it. He owns it. He listens to the rebuke from, from Tamar, who he just was about to kill, and he steps into the light. And instead of sin gaining a foothold in his life, grace gains a foothold in his life. Instead of darkness beginning to flood him and continue to control him, light begins to shine. And we know, as we read the rest of Genesis, we'll see that light, that grace will work on his heart, and it will change him. I mean, he's going, he's going to go from a deeply self-centered, self-absorbed man to someone who later on, when, when his father is faced with losing his, his beloved son, Judah's going to make a different choice. You don't have to turn there, but 44, that chapter, verse 33. Judah, without knowing it's Joseph, pleads with him. He says, now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let the boy return with his brothers. That's a different man. How did Judah change? Well, God gave him another opportunity. Did he deserve it? Did he merit it? There's no way. He deserved to be destroyed just like his sons had. But yet God in his grace had allowed him to remain. And had given him an opportunity to change. That's grace. Second, we see Tamar brings God's grace to Judah's son. You know, both of, the, both of the wicked sons. I mean, you think about what he says there in verse 26, right? Do you recognize that he said, she is more righteous than I? I mean, I mean, think about that. 
I mean, how many of us read that story and thought, oh yeah, Tamar, righteous? Probably not. Probably not. But we're not looking at it at the level we need to look at it. I mean, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I don't know, anyone ever named their kids Tamar? But David will do that. You want to name your kid Tamar? I'll tell Stefan that you decided to care. <laughs> name, your, name his firstborn daughter Tamar, right? Set in stone, go like Rion, it's done. Right? It'll be a great illustration for future generations, right? But it's not like a name you naturally think, oh yeah. Forget Ali, let's call her Tamar. That brings happy thoughts to mind. Not so much. Not so much, but it actually does for, for, for you know, Jewish history. I mean, David will name one of his daughters Tamar. If you remember back, I don't know, three years ago maybe at this point when we studied Ruth, right? And that great story that has many of the same themes we're talking about here, even with the, the, the uh, literate marriage. I mean, when, when Boaz marries Ruth, the elders, the blessing they pronounce on, on Boaz is, is uh, where's the find it? We read it properly, right? He, they, they, the elders say to her, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez. Who Tamar bore to Judah. I mean, it became a blessing to remember Tamar. But it's crazy. Now, why? Why? I mean, you don't bless people with this with a scandalous dead relative's name. I don't know if you've got scandals in your family history past, right? But it's not like, you know, you deliver that to the person on their birthday when you go, you're just like your great-grandfather who was a murderer. You know, it just doesn't gel. It doesn't really bring those happy thoughts. But, but they saw this story differently than we see that story. Yeah, yeah. And there were deeper motives that were driving Tamar that maybe we need to get in touch with. I mean, to put it very bluntly, Judah deliberately engaged in prostitution for pleasure. Tamar was doing it to fight for his posterity. For his offspring. She knew it was her duty to produce an offspring for a man who was so wicked that God killed him. She wanted to honor him. And not just him, but the next brother, who literally used her like a prostitute, right? All about his own pleasure, none of the personal responsibility. She suffered through that. But despite being treated like that by brother number one, brother number two, she was still, she was still willing. She was still willing to risk her life to honor the most undeserving people or family you could encounter. I mean, she taps into that gospel pact of I'll give up my life for the good of your life. I'll sacrifice myself so that you can have honor. And that's grace. Brothers didn't deserve that. Judah didn't deserve that. But yet that's how she saw it. Third, she brings grace to Judah's distant descendants. I mean, she knew perhaps that, that Judah's offspring were part of that grander promise given to Abraham and reaffirmed to us. That grander promise that went all the way back to the beginning of the seed that would come, that would crush evil. And perhaps she thought that, you know what? That, though Judah has devalued that and squandered that, I value that highly. Maybe, maybe she understood that, that the hope of mankind 
rested on that distant sea. And that Judah's me first mentality was, was putting that at risk. If it could be at risk for the sovereign God. Yet God in his sovereignty knew where to put Tamar. And to arrange those time and places to produce offspring for Judah that would carry on that great plan of salvation. And sure enough, we see that. Verse 27, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. Those two twin boys, Perez and Zara, you'll find them in the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, stop and think about it. The genealogy of Jesus has in there these two boys born in this man. I mean, you ever think, oh, my life's too messed up for God to use me? It, there's no way it's as bad as Judah. There's no way. You think you've made mistakes? Look back to the second slide we looked at. I mean, Judah made mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. And yet that God of His grace was still willing to work through him. I mean, sometimes it seems like God seeks out people like that. So if you do sit here and think, man, my life's a really good, really huge mess, well, that actually is probably more fertile ground for God working in your life than for someone who's sitting here thinking, oh, I'm glad I'm not like Judah. Because God knows he's not going to have to navigate your ego. Yeah, yeah. He knows you're not going to think you have it all together because you know you do not have it all together. Amen. Now the crazy thing is, is Tamar would never leave, live to see the fullness of that, that, that mission. Because the promise was way bigger than her. Yeah. <laughs> way bigger than her. I mean that bloodline would eventually be inscribed on the family tree of Jesus because she chose to risk her life. I mean, she nearly lost it. I mean, Judah was trying to burn her. And she was sacrificing herself for the sake of his sons because she cared more about his posterity than he cared about. But man, that's God's grace. A God that continually initiates with people who are stubborn and hard-hearted and don't want to follow them. We're probably all a lot like that. And so the challenge for us is, hey, you want to become more like Tamar than Judah, amen? But we don't leave here thinking, okay, this week, gonna be a, gonna, we're getting to rock bottom as quick as possible. Let's be like Judah. No, 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 wrong path. Follow Tamar. Not in the prostitution bit, amen? It does have to be said. But follow her in the sense of she was willing to give up her life to save those who don't deserve. But when we go out and we try to make disciples, isn't that what we're doing? We're literally saying, hey, I'll lay down my life to help God save someone who doesn't deserve to be saved. Because someone did the same for you. Someone did the same for me. And that's the mission, that's the pattern. And when we align ourselves with that pattern, radical change can come about. But don't leave here deceived about sin, guys. Don't leave here with a cavalier, reckless, soft on sin attitude. Look at the story of Judah and see how quickly things can get out of control. And choose to snuff it out right in the beginning. But also look at despite that mess, God poured out grace. And he's done the same with us. But we cannot receive that grace in vain. Amen. We've got to look at that unmerited favor that God showers on us and choose even more so than to pour out our life for His glory and for His honor. And we may never see the fruits in our lifetime of that sacrifice, 
But when we do that, then we're even aligning ourselves even closer with God's plan of redemption. Amen? Let's have a prayer, and then we'll stand and sing one final song together. You know, Father, we, we thank you, you know, in a twisted way, really, for, for the, the depths of darkness that Judah allowed to come into his heart. We pray, God, that, that, that as Paul wrote, it can really be a warning to keep us from setting our hearts on evil, God. I mean, this week, God, as we're tempted maybe to look at something or to say something or to harbor an attitude, God, we pray you help us, God, to pause and consider Judah. Consider how quickly darkness overruled his life and took control of his life. And how much pain and heartache and suffering and death came as a byproduct. We pray you help us, God. Help us to see that in our own lives, God. Help us to envision the end of that road that sin leads to, God. And to choose a different path, Father. We, we thank you. We thank you that amidst that great darkness, you sent Tamar. Someone who grasped that, 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 that pattern of selflessness that we so desperately need to grasp. Father, we know that none of us are deserving of second, third, fifth, fourth, tenth chances, God. But you're a God who gives them. And we pray, God, that, that it can become common in our vocabulary to utter the words, I am wrong. To take ownership, to step into the light, God, and allow grace to begin to change us. Father, help us, God. Help us to be a transformed people, to not receive your grace in vain, but to allow it to work on our lives and change our hearts and renew our minds. We pray that as we do that, God, we can extend that pattern. We can choose to, to imitate her and lay down our life for the sake of others. Others that are undeserving just as we were, God. We know that none of this is possible apart from your son. With all these examples and, and, and people like Tamar that we see are mere reflections of what your son does for us, God. And we thank you that we live in a time where he has come and that it's no longer shadows, but we can look at the reality. Father, we pray that the cross is always before our eyes. The sacrifice of your son laying down his life for us as undeserving people to set us free.